you know, you've got some of these bigger brands that have done millions of dollars in consumer research that some of these smaller indie brands don't have the money to do. Take yeah. those brands, put them together, look for the common thread. And that could be color, tonality, where the photo's placed, why it's done a certain way, where the logo is placed, why it's there. Just look for those moments of commonality and then jot those down. Don't replicate what they're doing, yeah. but look right. for the hierarchy and the architecture that they have spent millions of dollars perfecting and now take that and rethink it because those look, big brands are looking to those indie brands for what they're going to do next. But you can take look at that hack market research. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Right. Welcome everyone to No Surprises season two. Um, and we are a look inside the ambitious, joyful, and occasionally terrifying journey of creators. Kelsey, we have a guest with us today. It's very I'm exciting. So happy because as much as Mallory and I like talking to each other, and we do quite a bit. And I assume think, that people like listening to us talk to each other, well, which that is a whole other thing. Um, <laughs> I think we're like at our core, we're both very creative or very curious people. Mm -hmm. And so when Mal and, and Raina and the rest of the, the team came together and said, this, this season, we're going to focus on talking to people about creativity. I was like, great. You might as well say that, like, I am legally obligated to eat a bowl of delicious Lucky Charms every morning, because that sounds like an ideal scenario for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and each, each episode this season, we're going to be taking a, a deeper look into um, something that pertains to each of our, our guests and also something that our team at Week the Website holds dearly internally. But, um, but yeah, join us in welcoming our guest today, Taja. Taja, how are you? I'm great. I am thrilled to be your first guest on the second season. So thank you for having yes. me. Yes. Yes. Well, really it's wonderful excited. to have you here with us. Um, so today we're going to be talking about the creative process. We're going to be talking about imperfection. But before we dive in there, why don't you tell us a little bit about you and what you do and Pulp, pulp and Wire and all the amazing stuff that has um, led you to what you're doing today? Sure. I'll give you the five minute tour, if you will. So Perfect. I founded the company Pulp and Wire in 2004. Um, my background is as a designer. So a big part for me in creating the company was to put the creatives the center of the process. And the old world agency model is very much kind of, it's a bit antiquated in which, you know, everything would be ported through an account manager to somebody else. And then ultimately the creatives who sat on the third floor in a, you know, cubicle would do the design and then spit it back for someone else to tell them kind of like a game of telephone, what needed to be done. Now that process can work for some people, but as the creative who also needed to have a seat at the table and think strategically, it just didn't work for me. And I knew there were other incredibly talented creatives out there who also were thirsting for more responsibility, that seat at the table with the clients and being able to be futuristic and think about the end result while also in their head designing it. So I started the company. We've grown slowly over the last 19-ish years, almost 20 years. And there's 20 of us. We're located in Portland, Maine. We're a mix of hybrid and in-person. Thank you, COVID. Um, but it works really well. <laughs> and our focus is in the natural and organic CPG category. So over the years, and we'll kind of talk about this too, you know, we were a Swiss army knife. We did a little bit of everything for everyone. But then as we really found our passion and my background was initially in industrial design. So for me, specifically in the automotive side, everything was, wow. really, it was smell, it was touch, it was it was environmental. It was immersive. 
So as we, I changed into graphic design and worked in different agencies. And then where we are today, we do a lot in CPG. So consumer packaged goods, and that is branding and design for better for you brands and better for the earth companies. So again, it is still immersive. Everything that you buy, there's a reason it's jumping off the shelf to you because we're aligning with you as our key consumer. When you touch it, when you read it, it's all a relationship. So really kind of bringing in the foundational roots of what I loved about industrial design and building dye lines and creating things with my hands and then bringing it through to the CPG side, but really working with brands that we believe in that are going to bring better ingredients, better food, better relationships with the consumers to market. And we do everything from market strategy, again, figuring out who the consumer is, what's your voice, your messaging, who are we reaching, why we bring that into the creative. We've got a roadmap. Now the creative can align with that roadmap and we can help bring it to life visually. And then you can have the best design and the best strategy, but if no one knows you exist, you're not going anywhere. So that then moves into web design, creative, digital marketing, content creation, all of that good stuff to get the awareness for the brands. I love that. that. Is, I mean, I hope people know this, but that is a whole lot of stuff in your portfolio that you offer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it truly is like a full circle moment. Like you said, like if you can have the best brand in the world, but if no one knows about you, then yep. is it really working for you? Right. And you can have the most beautiful design, but if you look like eight other people on the shelf, that's not going to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, man, there is a time when I kept seeing the same font somewhere and it yeah. was on every new CPG. Mm-hmm. And it was, I know it in Canva is the font Barbara. I don't know what the other, other, um, <laughs> but I'm like, there it is. There's Barbara again. I, ah. I drive my team nuts with that too, because we'll go to, I'll go to the trade shows and then I'll, I'll come back and be like, don't use that font. Take that out. I never want to see that again. Cause I saw it five times over and you, in seeing it in a vacuum is always so interesting. I was yeah. just a judge for an award ceremony and being able to see one category and a lot of the same. It's fascinating. Yeah. I was like, Oh, we will not be doing that in the future. Well, and I'm sure for the client, it's a, it's conflicting, right? Because on the one hand, They want to feel special, individual, unique. And on the other hand, I think what people see when they see consistency like that is, well, it must be working, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think it feeds into this weird cycle of, um, you know, like design that iterates very closely to products that have come before and after because Mm -hmm. they're like, well, this must be something that consumers are connecting with. And I think they do, right? But they connected with it when that was a fresh idea. And so that's like the hardest part is always keeping it being the fresh idea and not just, oh, people liked that. Well, and as Mm -hmm. I tell my team too, is, you know, you've got some of these bigger brands that have done millions of dollars in consumer research that some of these smaller indie brands don't have the money to do. Take those brands, put them together, look for the common thread. And that could be color tonality, where the photo's placed, why it's done a certain way, where the logo is placed, why it's there. Just look for those moments of commonality and then jot those down. Don't replicate what they're doing, but look for the hierarchy and the architecture that they have spent millions of dollars perfecting and now take that and rethink it. Because those look, big brands are looking to those indie brands for what they're going to do next. But you can take look at that hack. market research. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. <laughs> right. If you don't have millions of dollars to spend on market research, here's a simple hack for you. I actually think about that a lot. And I'm like, oh, well, what are the big brands doing and where are they shifting their positioning? And where does that kind of align with what we're doing? Because that's going to tell me a whole lot about which way the market's going. Well, I was looking at your portfolio and one of the brands, I mean, I'm so familiar with so many of the companies that you worked with, right? Like Mal and I 
met at a cooking club. We love food. We live, our office is above a Foxtrot, which is, you know, just like a very CPG haven. Yeah. Like, like, (laughs) you know, like beautiful space for all this. And one of the ones that I thought was really interesting was the Bob's Red Mill brownie mix, which I feel like you have this very specific brand with Bob's, which is that it's, you know, heritage and it's, it's healthy and it's warm, but then you're seeing like an introduction of new products like brownies, but also a new like angle on their design, which is, I think just like very interesting to me and probably was a really fun challenge for you all. So that that's an interesting client. I love this brand. I'd love this brand for years. So being able to get to with them was such a treat. And we've done a few different projects for them and they have an amazing in-house marketing team. So they have great designers. They have great marketing, but they'll pull us in every once in a while when there's like, help us on this. We need to think outside the box. We need to, we need help pushing this across the finish line or they're crazy busy with a different launch. And it really is fun because Mm -hmm. it's instead of not really working directly with a client, you're working with a marketing team of other creatives that are just like (sighs) excited for what's new and those mm-hmm. are really lovely relationships to have. Um, yeah. You know, we have relationships of all types where we're looking, working with their marketing team or working with their design team or working directly with the owner. And each yeah. relationship is different when you're, as you know, when you're working with an owner owned business where there's like two of them, emotion can get a lot of emotion can get in the way too, yeah. because they're so early stage. When you work with larger teams, of course, decision by jury sometimes can fall. Yes. Into- right. It's from being like, it goes from like being one's child, like in the case yeah. of Kelsey and I, when we think about week of the website, you have to kind of divorce yourself from it a little bit when you're starting to make bigger choices for the company as a whole. And you're like, mm-hmm. other people are making choices now too. As ah, feels gross. Our, our child is growing up on its own, but you have to like, let go. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I, that's part of like, I, Bob's is like one of those unicorn brands to work with truthfully, because just as lovely as they're perceived in the market and the ownership and everything they've done for their employees, their team is also just as lovely internally <laughs> to work with. So whenever we have a project, we're just like, oh, so hey. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I'm yeah. so happy. I'm so happy to hear that because I think when you get to hear a little bit about like what's behind the scenes of some of these brands that you love. It's delightful when the brand perception aligns with like the team reality. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just like smoke and mirrors. It's not. Yeah. (laughs) And and lovely. So great. And now I need to try these brownies. They look Mm -hmm. really good. Wait, where did you see them? They're on the Pulp and Wire website. Oh, they're on the Pulp and Wire website. I thought you meant you saw them like at Foxtrot. I was like, oh. They might be down there. They, they might be. I will check they probably are. after this call. <laughs> I'll do a, a, a special reporter segment of like, what can we find that is also in this shop that is also on the Pulp and Wire website? Amazing. Well, yes, I'll please. Yeah. Seen in the wild. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we talked about your journey. You started in industrial design, which I did not know that. And that's amazing. So what made you, what was the impetus for you moving over to CPG? What made you want to take that leap into packaged goods specific, specifically? Cause you say you, you've applied some of that knowledge from the industrial design. So I'm like, how does that work? So, I mean, part of it is just how my personal brain works of being able to see shapes and put puzzles together very quickly, which is you know, great for industrial design because it's, it all is very mathematically oriented, even though I'm terrible at math, I'm very good at figuring out (laughs) die lines and those mathematical equations. And I do love an Excel spreadsheet from time to time. Oh, yes. Does the work for you. 
Mm, <laughs> a good formula. Um, but the transition was really, we won an award. Uh, Package Design Magazine was before they, it's no longer around anymore, but they did a contest every year where they were bringing three design agencies and it was all pro bono and they'd bring in a client and you had to design the packaging for them in a contest to win. And they had been doing this for years and we were selected to do one of the contests earlier. I want to say, ooh, it was more than 10 years ago. And it was our first play in packaging. And because we hadn't been engrossed in packaging, we'd been doing so much other design work and branding work. It was just like a kid in a candy shop. We got to try all of these things. And, and honestly, I got to really lean into my industrial design and dye line creation and how does this work and mechanics. Mm-hmm and do something really cool. And it, the company was called Clara's Cookies. She was a Scandinavian cookie company. And we made the whole packaging look like her grandmother's aprons with like, fr- I mean, it was really fun, but it was like no glue solution that the cookies could sit in. And it just had this beautiful European apron moment to it. We did end up winning the competition. Um, we did not win the client, but that's okay. We won the competition. <laughs> and it was like, the light went off. I'm like, oh my gosh. I can bring everything I love, which is about experience into, which is why I fell in love with packaging. And it was, it was, it was the dye line. It was the creation. It was so hands-on. It Mm -hmm. wasn't just computer aided design. It really went beyond that into thinking about the consumer and the the psychology of the consumer and what was going to resonate with them on the shelf. And then once you picked it up, what are those little Easter eggs, those hidden moments of detail that are going to get you to fall in love with this brand? And that was like uh, the aha moment of like, I need to do mm-hmm. more. It was also at a time, my husband's a classically trained chef and we, and my kids were young and everything we ate and what came into the house was very important to him from a nutrition standpoint. But it was like the early days of like whole foods. Don't even know if there was that many around yeah. and healthier eating was more nuanced. So that's when we're like, okay, well, let's get into this. And let's start thinking about these individual brands, these up and coming brands. And then as the explosion of Whole Foods and Better For You, it all just kind of culminated at the perfect time. You're like, that's our category. It's what we believe in. It's what brings us passion. We can really speak to these smaller brands and to the consumers and bring beautiful things to market that are going to be, you know, help people's lives be better. Mm-hmm. I feel like those moments of inspiration where you're like, this is what we're meant to be doing are so special and so rare because I feel like I'm sure as a business owner, you know, you have to make a lot of hard choices. It seems like all the time. So when one comes to you, that feels easy. It's like, yes. Uh, I I tell (laughs) my team all the time when it's easy, it's right. Stop fighting it. Yeah. Yeah. We, we naturally as humans, we like to make things difficult, but oh, yeah. if it's easy, stop trying to make it harder for yourself. So you have to work harder and maybe like to what end result, you're going to burn yourself out. If it's easy, go with it. And that was just it. And then as we grew, it was now, what does the world look like for this brand beyond just making yeah. beautiful packaging with the right strategy? What world is it in? How does it come to life on web and that story and those touch points? And then social media became a thing. Mm-hmm. And it was like, all right, let's, let's build these brands to help change the world. Mal, the way you, you talk about this oh, is, oh, sorry. sorry. I, I was going to say the way you talk, you're talking about this is quite real is like almost romantic in a sense. <laughs> and I love that because you're touching on something that as 
someone who works in the same field, I notice the Easter eggs. I notice the cohesive storylines. I notice when brands go above and beyond to bring in that storytelling aspect. So like you talked about using the grandmother's aprons and the design, those like touch points of nostalgia that just make something so special. And those little it's and bits that, like you said, help you fall in love with a brand. Like my favorite recent experience of this is the Vital Farms eggs. Mm-hmm. their little newsletter that they put in it. I, every time I get like, I will only buy vital farms. Cause one, I know that they're pasture raised, but then two, it's like, what's going on at the farm? Who's the hen of the month? Like they, they well, form a connection with you without even knowing you. And that's huge. Right. Mal- this also because I also wanted to raise chickens at one point. I mean, that doesn't did. really, it's not really surprising if you look at how I'm dressed right now. I'm like, of course, <laughs> But, you know, not all it's cracked up to be. You had I know. Chickens. I'm like, I'm going to end up with 20 chickens because none of them are going to be laying oh. eggs. And I am not taking Penny to get off. I'm not eating her after years of rearing her. I'm just not that person. So I'm going to end up with a house full of birds. We are full of uh, farmers. Yeah. I yeah. have two bird related things for us. One, mm-hmm. Mallory, did you also notice that on Vital Farms, you can log on to our URL, put in the like a code from your box of eggs and see a a webcam of the farm that they're from like you can Uh, see them wandering around this is what i love show notes so funny so extra reality tv show of chickens it's great and i do want to know i think i shared this also with you all but i was in a like slack group and everyone was doing intros and they were like, hi, you know, I'm so-and-so. One interesting fact about me is that I have seven roosters. And everyone was like, why? <laughs> and they said that um, the that the eggs that they got trying to raise chickens had not been like checked to see what what was inside. And uh, there was a there was a you know a chicken shortage at the time that they got the chickens. And so they ended up with seven roosters. That's a cool row den, though. I mean, I can't I know. <laughs> Can you imagine? Normally, um, I mean, pecking order is a real thing when it comes to roosters. Normally, like we had, mm-hmm. we had two, but one was definitely beta to the alpha rooster. <laughs> oh yeah, one was in charge. Yeah, mm-hmm. Kung Pao was not. Uh, oh Kung my God, Pao. Kung Pao. Okay, I, could, sorry. I, I have too many bird stories, and I was going to start talking about your swans, Kelsey, but another time, another um, day, another day. <laughs> I have before we before we move on from your transition. Um, to, you know, CPG and good for you, good for the world space. I'm curious, I think we share a lot of similarities coming, you know, from, from the agency world, um, or small independent female owned agency, I should say. And one of those things is like when you're transitioning to a new offering, when you're adding something new to your arsenal, even if it's something that clients have asked about, um, things that you've had opportunities for, that transition for like your process, your team's knowledge, that all can feel a little bit hard, right? Because if you're coming to it from the place of like, I'm an expert in X, but you want to try something new. How did you navigate that? Like, I'm sure there were some moments where you felt like we're not quite there yet in terms of what we can do and what we want to offer. So if you can, do you have any like memories or thoughts on what that creative transition was like and what those feelings of like, what those moments of not quite there yet, you know, felt like for you all. 
So I remember like when Facebook first came online and yeah. Instagram first came on, it's why I have the, my handle is just at Taja on Instagram. Everyone's like, how'd you yeah. get that? I'm like, I was like the third one. Early on adopter. You y'all are early adopters. I'm like Mallory five, six, eight, nine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the latest adopter. But to even consider social media, and this is when there was like three people on my team, I needed to know how to do it first. And that doesn't mean that you have to be the expert at everything. It's just, you have to understand how it all works and the mechanics of it so Mm -hmm. that there's going to be a day when no one else is able to get to it. And you're going to have to figure it out. No matter how big your agency is something at some point, something's going to hit the fan and you're going to have to figure it out. But then also know enough to be dangerous. (laughs) That's what I was just going to say. I always say, I'm like, know enough to be dangerous. That's all you need to know. Mm -hmm. But then hire people who are better at it than you, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, so that you Support them and you can learn from them because to have that team, you, you can't be the, you can't be the smartest person in the room. That is going to be the biggest detriment to your company. You need people who have skills that you don't have. This is something I do with my team constantly is like StrengthsFinder, which I don't know if you've ever taken it, but it's, it's called StrengthsFinder 2.0. And there's 35 strengths in the world. You have five of them. Know your five and lean mm-hmm. into it because that is going to be ultimately where your passion lies and your happy place and how you work and how your team works together. I love it. I have my whole team at 20 mapped out. I know everyone's strengths and, and honestly, it's helped me move around team members to help them really lean into their strengths more effectively. Um, but yes, so that's, you know, the strengths is the biggest thing. Know the strengths of your team, know what you're good at, know what they're good at, give them the space to do their job. But at the love same that. time, also know how everything works because you can't have a whole department running knowing absolutely nothing about it. I mean, I'll be honest. I don't love social media. I'm not on it all that much, but I understand it. Yeah. yeah. That's such That's great right. advice, especially for folks who have growing businesses, right? Mal mm-hmm. and I are, we're about to hit nine years this month and we have gotten to that point where we're no longer the people who do the thing that we sell anymore. Big transition, but exciting. Yeah. Huge right. thing to let go of, but it's also that ability to say, Hey, you know what? I understand this, but just so you know, like everyone on this team is better at this than me. And you want that it's, it's a shift, but you also know that at any given time you can jump in and support them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Kelsey, you looked like you were just about to say, no, I'm sorry. I was doing was like a thing where I was trying to, and I was like, I was like a moment. I always have questions, but I know that you've done some great prep. And so I don't want to step on, uh, no, (laughs) no, you're no. I mean, I think the beauty of prep is that it, it will, I'm like segue into the creative process. I believe in prep preparation is something to be done and then almost thrown out the window. Um, it helps give you a baseline, um, enough to be dangerous enough to hold a conversation. Um, but then also, the freedom to play and let a conversation take you where it needs to go. Um, yeah, yeah I love and that. so we're talking, we are talking about creatively, like how, how we all work, but Taja, I'm wondering when you started your own agency and you were coming from industrial design and then you're moving to CPG, did you adapt your process or what you had known as your process from one industry to the next? Did you take certain things with you? Did you find new things out along the way? Did you mold it into something new, essentially? I mean, luckily they're complementary. So mm-hmm. everything in industrial design, because I, I mean, I was going to school in the late nineties, so it wasn't so much computer aided design. It was a lot mm-hmm. of like handwork. And I also grew up mm-hmm. doing woodworking and things like that. And power tools are like my happy place. And we talk about having same. Things- 
it's building a chicken coop makes me very happy. I get really jazzed when I get to tell people about all of the tools I own. I'm like, I have a power drill. I know. Trust <laughs> me, know how to use it. Going to Home Depot or Lowe's in the weekend is not like a bad thing for me. I'm like, what do we need? I show up to Home Depot with sub with a new person in tow. And every single time, the first thing I say to them is, do you know that Home Depot is my favorite store? (laughs) It's my favorite store. And I will show up at 6 a.m. with the contractors and I'll be like, what do I need? (laughs) Anyway, yes, Home Depot is my love language. Same. Uh, But yeah, a big part of it was just understanding those mechanics early on. So now then moving into, then ultimately I kind of left industrial design because you know I was being groomed more for middle America. It was very male dominated. I mean, granted, so was graphic design, but I found my way into graphic design kind of, that's when Adobe creative suite and everything else was happening. And I just kind of went all in. But what I did find was when I moved over to packaging, everything I loved about that hands-on piece, and even still today, we're working through like really complex packaging projects for big clients. You know, I'll tell my team, like, just give me five minutes with an X-Acto blade and a ruler. I'm going to figure this out. And that is my happy place because I like being able to put the computer down, so to speak, and focus on just using your brain and simple tools. So yes, I've got a lot of things carried over. The biggest thing for me that I learned in the early stages of design, to your point that you're going through also, is there's a certain point you need to let go of certain things. You need to let your team do it, but you also mm-hmm. need to know where your, your, your excellence lies. And for me, it was really sitting with the clients and seeing futuristically where they needed to be, where they need to be in a year, mm-hmm. where they need to be in three years, where they need to be in five years, and then putting those puzzle pieces again together. So less creating a die line physically, but in mentally, I'm, I'm pulling it all together and helping them pull that vision strategically. Like what needs to happen? How do they need to look? How does it all come together? And then working with my team to help that reality. Yeah. I feel like one of the hardest parts of the creative process for clients is when, and I, I can hear this in your voice that like throughout your career and every day, you all are pouring so much personal creativity into these projects you have a vision for the brand. That vision is informed by, you know, the brief that you're getting from them, but still it becomes its own thing in your own creative mind. How do you work with your team when you're all really excited about an idea and the client responds to it and they're like, it's fine, but it's not quite there. Like, I think there's this excitement that you need your creative team to have going into that ideation process that can sometimes be a little hard to recover when it doesn't feel like it's a win for the client. How do you work through those moments with your team and for yourself? I mean, sometimes you need to give it the team a little chance to lick their wounds and then come back at it. But mm-hmm. I mean, we teach the team that even if your design wasn't chosen, you can lead from the bench. You can still mm-hmm. be a big part of this project. But truthfully, let's say nothing hit the mark. I'd go back and be like, did we ask the right questions? Mm-hmm. Let's go back to the Q&A. Let's go back to the strategy we built because normally we've kind of, luckily this doesn't happen very often because we're getting them to sign off on the strategy. They're signing off on vision boards. They're signing off on all these pieces that ultimately ladder up to the creative. So it's not a huge surprise. Yeah. But sometimes it's like, oh, that's just not quite what I had in my mind. And then we're learning about the client. We're like, oh, communication might not be their strong suit. Let's ask these questions. Let's maybe we didn't ask the right questions because we're both at, we're both at fault. Both sides need to come together and figure it out. It's never really one side or the other. Yeah. Right. Right. So that's just about unpacking what maybe what worked, what didn't work. And let's say they liked nothing. Then what I would do is I'd 
basically jump on with them and have the team jump on and be like, let's look at it. What aspects do you kind of like? If we were to take this off of it or remove this, is it color? What's working? What's not working? Start to kind of like take the pieces apart a little bit to then pull it back together and put that creative expertise and energy into what you know is working. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they can't see the forest through the trees and you need to help them see the trees. I am taking two things away from what you just said that I think are really great, like actionable um, items, which is building a ladder of creative approval so that it's never just one big moment. And I think that that's such a great way to kind of protect your team and your client from those moments of make or break disappointment of incremental approval that builds on top of each other so that everyone's on the same page when it comes time to make those presentations. I love that. And I think especially for people who are working with team members for the first time beyond their own creative process, that's, that's not always like super like top of mind, but I think it's a great piece of advice from someone who's really seasoned. Well, and also I think it's easy for crazy to get excited about an idea. And if it's kind of like going sideways, you're like, oh, okay, let's, let's bring this back to center before we show it to them. Sometimes I'll be like, I love this, but I'm going to be honest, not for this brand. So let's yeah. just, hold this. let's hold this like magical moment for a different client. Just yeah, yeah. let's well, re- recircle around with what we know they're looking for. And maybe we do end up coming back to it. Maybe it ends up being our wild card in the end. That's like, mm-hmm. Hey, here's something totally out of left field just to show you something different. But we're very mindful to kind of balance that, you know, kind of exuberant creativity with the reality, with who we're talking to. Cause at the end of the day, it's not really about us. It's not about the client. It's getting the customer to buy the product. And that's mm-hmm. when them kind of, again, see that bigger picture. We that. run up against this exuberant team mentality all the time where our team members are just like, we always say, um, you know, our clients pose us a question like, can you do this? And our response is usually, I don't know, can I? And then we go <laughs> off on this like fact-finding mission. Um, and so when it's come down to helping to guide our team, we've kind of come around to a mentality that you actually wrote about, um, in Forbes, which was your article that is, um, done is better than perfect. And that is something that we tell our team all the time is, you know, you're going to waste a lot of time trying to get something just right. Mm -hmm. But in actuality, like we just need to get clients sign off. We want to make sure everyone's on the same page. Like your ideas, perfections, maybe not theirs. Um, but tell us a little bit more about how done is better than perfect applies to your life. Yeah. So this, it's an interesting one because we can spend, we can spend so much time micromanaging something to the point that almost sometimes we overwork it. Think of it like dough, like if you're making bread, don't overwork it because Mm -hmm. at some point you just need to know, are you close? So when we think about round one creative, we do a lot of spitballing internally to just be like, Oh, is this the right direction we want to go in? Is that the right sketching? You know, is that the sketch that we want to move into being more formalized? Don't try and over-perfect things early on, even in our own process, so that we can kind of get a breath of what's happening. And then you do need to ultimately show it to the client, but we're not just showing them one finished look with everything that does need to be perfect from like a large campaign standpoint. We're showing them ways in. And Mm -hmm. because there are budgets, there's time constraints, they want to keep their costs down. We also need to be quick and efficient and thoughtful with our process which means not blowing our whole budget in round one, trying to make it 
perfect when we Mm -hmm. don't even have the buy-in or the feedback from the client. So it's, again, it's, it's a fine balance. You need, it needs to look good. It can't just be a yard sale or a hot mess, but -hmm. at some point you do need to be like, it's done. It looks great. There is room for improvement. Yes, but not right now. Not right. right And I, well, there'll be time to finish it and make it perfect in the end. And at the end of the day, it will be, it'll be great. It'll be perfect. Mm -hmm. But don't, don't slow yourself down with a sense of perfection that a lot of designers have that will ultimately get in your way from moving things forward. Totally. I mean, I think about, um, you know, our team and for us, it's just like, you know, exactly manage your time, manage your resources, make sure you're all on the same page because in actuality, like in the world of design, I feel like you always have to leave room for evolution. So nothing's, there is no perfection because there is no end result. Therefore, you're just kind of getting it to a place where at present, it's good. It's good enough for now. Leave room for improvement, leave room for evolution, let things kind of become what they need to become. Because I don't know about you, I mean, you can do a lot of um, strategy and conceptualization in the background, but then when you, when it comes to applying it into real life and reality, and this goes back to, you know, teammates done is better than perfect. It's always like, well, you know, in reality, mm-hmm. that's, this doesn't exist and our, our clients maybe aren't going to feel this way. So it's nice that you want to get it perfect, but that's not the world that we live in. We just like, yeah, we have to focus on being efficient and getting some sort of movement towards a common goal with the client. Right. Cause we don't have like three years to work on this packaging, but also, no. you know, done doesn't mean sloppy. It's very thoughtful, no. done can be very thoughtful and very well thought out, but it's just not being overworked to the point mm-hmm. that you're blowing the whole budget early on when you don't even know how the client's going to react to it. And the same mm-hmm. goes for it. You know, sometimes you have to, it's vulnerability. You're putting yourself out there. I mean, with creative in round one, I mean, I think um, you said this, Kelsey, you know, it's, it's hard for creatives to put themselves out there and be like, did they like it? Did they not like it? What didn't work? There is a vulnerability there. And sometimes it's easier to keep working something over and over and over to avoid that vulnerability of actually finding out if they like it or not. So this is all part of that teaching. Yeah. So you have to put yourself out there at some point. So find that right stopping point that feels good, but also you're not, you don't need to take a mental health day because you overworked it so much that now you're burnt out from doing it. Yeah. I think that's such a great, both of you, you know, Mal, I love what you said about having to leave room Mm -hmm. because I think that, you know, to your point, Taja, like that perfectionism, it's, it's like a way of guaranteeing that no one's going to have a problem with what you've done because you did it perfectly. But especially when you're working with clients, if you, if you go real hard (laughs) in round one, it also doesn't really leave them any room psychologically for feedback. Because if you know, if you're an empathetic client and you're working with a team you believe in, people you have experience with, and they come to you with something that looks really polished, really finished, really ready to go. And you're like, I'm so sorry. You almost don't want to give feedback. That's not it. No, yeah. It's like, it makes it really hard for them to find a way in to give, to give that feedback. So I think I love what you both Mm. said about this of, you know, you have to leave space for that feedback. And part of that is leaning into that fear of imperfection 
and trusting that you are strong enough to take Mm -hmm. creative feedback on work that you really love. Um, so I love, I love both of those things. So I think it's such a part of the vulnerable creative process that you can like then stand up and be like, okay, yeah, like I can take that feedback to power this to the next level rather than being like, you didn't like it. I think also right. when you allow yourself that, that mental and brain space in the moment, even when the client's like, Oh, I'm not quite sure if I love that. You might actually have a solution in the back of your head. That's like, you know, what if we tried this? I got a thought, I got a crazy thought. What if we move this around? Give yourself the space to also be creative in the moment yeah. too, and to offer yeah. solutions versus being like, I'm going to need to take that back to the team and think about it because you're not, you know, throw it out there. Don't be afraid to give ideas or give solutions. Cause that's where I actually find the most magic happens is when they're like, I'm not quite sure. And it's like, Oh, what if we did this? Like, give me your thoughts, bring them into the creative process without making them the designer because we don't want them to become the designer, but giving them the flexibility to have a say also. Do you think that the, the, like the evolution of creativity as a concept, like is more accessible than it ever was before, right? People can make videos on their phones. They can create, you know, generative art. Like there is this incorporation of creativity into day-to-day life that wasn't that way 10 years ago. Do you feel like that's changing what clients expect to be a part of for the creative process for you all? Like I feel like before there was this, you know, kind of madman idea of everyone's going to sit around a table and say, this is what we need. And then the creative is going to happen and come back and bring it to you. It feels like clients really expect to be a part of that process now in a way that they weren't before. Do you feel like that's been that way for your company? I think with the smaller brands, absolutely. And I think we're going to see so much in the next couple of years. I mean, even the last year with AI and generated art. They're like, oh, well, what if I just did this? Or, I mean, I was, I was messing around with, I'm like, all right, what does an AI logo maker do out of pure curiosity? Mm-hmm. It was total shit. Don't get me wrong. I was like, gross. Okay. Well, this yes. is not taking over our careers anytime soon. Right. Yeah. Not coming for our jobs, but it can, and it will. <laughs> and that's what we have to be mindful of. But the one thing it can't do is it can't think strategically. Yeah. yeah. And it's not going to have the humanized emotion or understand full understanding of that com- consumer audience that yeah. constantly changes because we are human. Yeah. Right. But there is a lot to be said for, um, I think it's the fast food of design kind of side where they want mm-hmm. it fast. Like, Oh, I can just go into, you know, mid journey and do this. It's like, yeah, but you're not actually going to get what you're looking for. There's commoditization the of design. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's where you can use AI effectively and there are places for it, but with the big picture understanding and strategy and conceptualization and really thinking about the future of that design, not just the right now, that's where, you know, we still have a job. Yes. <laughs> right. Also, I hope they never figure out how to do hands right. Because I, I, I still, I still the six fingers and the sharp teeth in case you've seen right? that. Like very sharp. I try, I, I was trying to like have, I was trying to use AI to like generate a book cover, like a sample book cover. And I didn't know at the time that AI basically can't do anything with words, like it, it, like visually. And so I have a really funny mock, like a mock-up of a book that just says ye bock on it. (laughs) And everyone, you know, we die, we look at it, we're like, we, we have a little bit still, there's, there's still some room. Right. We got some time. You know, I do like, I do like that there are more ways for clients to experiment with design and then very quickly find out that it is like harder than they expect. 
-hmm. because I think it does for the right people, give them a moment to check in and understand like, oh yeah, I can get 80%, 70%, 60% of the way there. But like, do I want to go further yeah. and do I want right. to get to a hundred? They really don't Ulti- want to do it. They're like, that was too exactly. much. Exactly. Ultimately our clients are the kind of people who are like, I just don't want to do it. I just want to pay someone else to do it for me. There's yeah, always exactly. going to be people like that. So yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, well, these honestly, are at some point AI needs someone to at least type in the prompts. So yeah. that. <laughs> there's one job out there, everyone. I'm really good at prompts. Lead Listen, typer. Yes. I'm a real prompt. human being who's going to take my 10 normal fingers and type on the keyboard and you still can't beat me to that challenge. Right. What happens for it with a captcha? Like, are we, <laughs> are they getting wise to captcha codes? Or are we going to need humans to put those into still to make sure it's not all robots? I know. Well, I know we're um, getting to end of our time. Taja, thank you so much for this. Mal, is there anything else you wanted to touch on before we we wrap up? No, I was just going to say it's brilliant to end on some of these wise words. But before we break, Taja, is there anything you have going on in your horizon that you want to talk about? Oh, goodness. Um, Nothing overly. It could be a walk outside. You know, it could be like space. That's quiet time. <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting for the sun to come out. It's been gloomy mm. here in Maine. Mm-hmm. It feels like now two weeks. So I'm really, I'm excited for like 70 degrees in sunlight this weekend. Um, but no, I mean, I've, I've got my podcast that I've been talking with CPG brands. So if anyone's ever interested in how CPG and CPG brands are being run by their mm. owners, tune in. It's called the brand alchemist podcast. Um, you know, follow me on pulp and wire and ta- at Taja. And, you know, if you're an amazing creative out there that, you know, aligns with what I'm talking about, we're, you know, always looking for phenomenal, you know, designers and senior designers to join our team. So as we're growing and evolving, always looking for amazing talent to join us. Uh, I can't believe we did not even mention this at one point on this podcast, but we also had the great uh, joy of working with Taja to build her Taja.com website that everyone on our team is flatly obsessed with and clients ask about all the time. Speaking Um, of I didn't have time to build and I was willing to pay mine. Like I need this done. Here we are. Here we are. No, it was a blast. We love the site. So give that a look and um, can't wait to keep chatting again soon in the future. Taja, thank you for joining us today. Thanks Taja. Thank you both. This has been great and lovely chatting with you. Uh, Well, everyone, you can find out more about Taja and Pulp and Wire in our show notes. Um, I promise we'll include some little ditties about all of the bird content we had, because apparently this is a bird podcast now. Um, (laughs) But you can subscribe to um, our our vodcast version of this podcast. uh, no, No surprises on YouTube. You can also find this delightfulness anywhere you subscribe to your podcasts. Um, And yeah, welcome back to season two. We've got amazing guests for you rolling through. um, So be sure to check back more and uh, we'll catch you soon. 